Americans with the shortest vacations in the rich world are notorious workaholics. So I guess it just makes sense that we need to know our options to make the most of our precious little vacations. I'm Rick Steves, and today we're embarking on a sort of quick flyover of three completely different types of travel itineraries with a little help from our friends at Lonely Planet Publications. Don George starts us off with a glance at some of the newly emerging international travel destinations. Then, we'll consider two very different types of domestic trips. We'll take a fresh look at the ultimate American road trip along Route 66 and a budget traveler's guide to the Big Apple, New York City. We'll help you stretch your travel dollars and get our kicks in our nation's own backyard. Today, let's get reacquainted with some of the popular places and interesting people that make America such an amazing place to explore. Join us for more travel fun and tips as we explore both our own country and the rest of the world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. From exploring exotic emerging destinations to experiencing the good old USA, we've got plenty of adventure today on Travel with Rick Steves. Three of our friends from Lonely Planet are here to guide us through the towering urban canyons of New York City and along Route 66, from the rolling Midwest to the sun-baked Southwest. But let's start with what's new for international travel. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And uh, right now, I want to talk about undiscovered and emerging destinations. Uh, A lot of us have done a lot of traveling, and everybody's wondering, where's the next place to go? Where's the next place to go? I'm joined today uh, by Don George, who's the global travel editor from Lonely Planet. And if you're a traveler, especially in the developing world, you know that Lonely Planet covers everything. Uh, What do you guys have, over 600 different guidebooks? Every country in the world we cover. Every country. So uh, Don is the former uh, travel editor for the San Francisco Chronicle for 15 years. Don's written a guidebook called Travel Writing and for Lonely Planet, coordinating the, the research of so many writers. We have more than 200 writers out More than in the 200 field. writers. You know, Don, when you guys are uh, assessing where to, where to write a guidebook and so on, I know you've sort of got an ethic that you cover every country. Is that right? That's right. So you've got a guidebook on Greenland? We've got a guidebook to Greenland. We've got a guidebook to East Timor, the newest country in the world. Wow. So we really do go out of our way to make some information available about every single country that anyone could want to go to. Outside of Europe. We know Europe. We know America and Mexico. Those are huge destinations, I would imagine. Outside of that, what are the the biggest money makers for travel booksellers? Thailand is really, really popular. Thailand's Thailand big. is Globally, it's huge for popular. people who buy guidebooks. Yes, yeah. Um, well, Costa Rica is big. I Costa looked on Rica's a, on a comparative sales thing from uh, four different bookstores and all the different publishers, and they were like top in every store was Costa Rica by four different publishers. Each, each bookstore had a favorite publisher. Wow. And there's enough interest in Costa Rica that every publisher has a blockbuster Costa Rica book. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. It's a, such a rich, multifaceted destination. But it's also sort of the uh, lucky country in Central America because mm-hmm. it's the one country that didn't have a colonial heritage. It's not saddled with all of that structural poverty as much as its neighbors. Right. And today it's this uh, relative wonderland. They call it the Switzerland, I think, of right, Central America. Right, right. So it's a great place to go yeah. unless you're into um, political uh, discussion and civil strife and, uh, right, yeah, and, right. and, and uh, revolutionary movements. <laughs> right, in which you won't case, find that there. You want to go to Guatemala, El Salvador, <laughs> or Nicaragua. You got a guidebook to Nicaragua. We do. Are people going there? People are going there. I mean, it's very interesting that countries like that, and Colombia is another good example of countries that were perceived five years ago, certainly, as a place no one would want to go to. And then as new governments come in, for example, and they institute new safety measures and the economy improves somewhat, they become easier and easier for people to go to. So that now the, the sort of cutting edge traveler is going there. And probably in five years, it'll be much more mainstream travelers going there. They will open up and get safer. And it's a cycle. There is a cycle. I've seen that in Croatia, for instance. Uh, first, it's everybody's in Croatia. It's the darling of Mediterranean tourism. Then there's a war. Right. Serbians are uh, you know, taking pot shots at Dubrovnik. No tourism at all. All the people that are into tourism, they're back to fishing and farming. Right. And uh, it's, it's a horrible situation for the people. And then it takes a little while. But first, the Germans come back. 
I've always noticed it's the Germans first, <laughs> and then the adventurous Americans, mm -hmm. and then the Japanese tour groups. Right. And there's this sort of Germans, then the Americans, then the Japanese yeah. among the big travelers on the planet. Yeah. Croatia is the perfect example. Croatia is on everybody's it list now. It's, it's the place to go it's with, a good, hot, with good reason. It's a hot it's a emerging place. Well, in a sense, Italy is so overwhelmed with tourism, right. and Croatia has a lot of the same uh, ambience and a lot of Mediterranean charm. Right, for about half the price. That's right. Hey, we've got some people that are uh, on the line, and I would like to talk to Chris in Greendale, Wisconsin. Chris, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Nice to talk to you. I've been a long-time reader of your books and watching your television programs. And uh, I traveled to the Soviet Union back in 1995. It was my first trip anywhere abroad, and uh, I just found the, the culture and the people fascinating and uh, I've always been uh, interested in other um, former Soviet countries, and Ukraine has always been uh, on my list to go to. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on Ukraine, where to go or what to do there. Well, first of all, you are quite an amazing guy, Chris. You went, you'd never been out of the country, and you flew from Wisconsin right into Russia. Yeah, it was, it was oh. uh, really the trip of a lifetime for me. I had, a couple of my friends had been uh, riding with the, uh, some girls over there. Back then, they used to have catalogs. I'm sure that now they ah, do Ah, this line. is a Russian girl trip. Right, right. <laughs> I, I was not even involved in this, and they just... Oh, of course not. No, no you just went along, and <laughs> you waited out in the, the car. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was, wow. uh, yeah, keep those guys in line, but uh, <laughs> they, asked, they asked me, you know, just out of the blue, Chris, you want to go to Russia? And I was ach aching to go somewhere. And it just sounded so exotic and everything. And So you I, and your buddies, you fly from Wisconsin. How'd you fly? From what airport? Chicago O'Hare. Chicago into Moscow? Into St. Petersburg, actually. It okay. was a tour. At that time, you couldn't go there without being part of a tour group, or you'd ha you had to have a, a sponsor from right. uh, one of the people living there. This is in 95, you said? In 95. So, so this it's is the 50-year anniversary of VE Day. Pretty bleak times yeah, in Russia. It was, and, uh, but it was also very fascinating to me. Well, let's cut right to the chase. How were the girls? Uh, the girls are you know, beautiful, of course. <laughs> Because when I was in St. Petersburg, I remember I went into a bar and I asked a girl, what's your name? And she said, $200. <laughs> well, you know, you got to, like you say, you got to go through the gotta... back door. And <laughs> Chris. <laughs> okay, so, but, you know, that's a, it's, a, it's a poignant thing to be in a place like St. Petersburg, such a rich cultural capital. Right. And you know you're worth a fortune. You know, mm -hmm. there's all sorts of corruption. My friend who runs the youth hostel in St. Petersburg, he did his banking in Riga. He had to take the train to Riga to wow. make a deposit. He had to pay people. You have to pay the security guards just to stay in business. you got to pay bribes for Bribe your money. Oh, yeah, there's a mafia runs rampant there at that time. And Protection I ran into that at the hotels and everything. You'd have goons by the elevators. You couldn't go up until you showed your passport to them and all that kind of stuff. Was it easy to meet people, or did you feel like you were just going to the cultural zoo looking over the fence? Well, we had this contact with two girls that my friends had been corresponding with. Another girl came along, you know, there was an extra girl, so, ah, so you I had... kind of made friends with her and traveled around a bit. And and they spoke English? Yeah, oh yeah. They spoke very good English, so that was, which is the case with the younger people there. And now you want to go to the Ukraine? Yeah, I just find the, the Soviet countries interesting. I like the, the cultural differences. and uh, right. Well, Ukraine... It's very romantic to me, and I'm... Probably because I have this experience, this first trip, and, you know, there's a romance with it. And, you know, it's just a big eye-opener for me. I bet. Yeah. Well, now... <laughs> and, I've, and I've been back every, every year since to Europe, you know, once or twice a year. Oh, so you've been back every year since then? Yeah, that, that started. Not to Russia, but uh -huh. all over the place. Wow. Okay, well, let's talk about the Ukraine, because uh, they had this horrible um, nuclear uh, catastrophe, and that chased right. all of their tourism, right? Nobody goes to Kiev. Now it's starting to happen. Do you guys have a guidebook to Ukraine? We do, and I, I've not been there myself, but I hear that Kiev is, is a jewel. Pe yeah. People love it when they go there. Mm. It's fun to be one step ahead of the crowds. And Chris, you go to Ukraine, you're going to be one step ahead of the crowds. People are going there. I'm hearing good things about it. But from my perspective, the most accessible part of the former Soviet Union are the three Baltic states, uh, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. 
Riga is great. It's got all this Hanseatic heritage, so it feels like a, a medieval Germanic superpower trading uh, port, you know. Mm-hmm. And Vilnius is very evocative and, and uh, very sort of wistful. Uh, yeah, I've read about all those places. Yeah, and uh, these are really the most um, comfortable for travelers and the most comfortable for uh, people who live there, uh, mm-hmm. parts of the former Soviet Union. So I'd recommend the Baltics as a beginning. One, one of those, yeah. Because yeah. uh, Ukraine is you're thinking a little little big to tackle right off the bat. It doesn't have the infrastructure right now or what? I think that the infrastructure in the Baltic states is probably more set than it is in the Ukraine. So yeah, I would think so, too. might do the Baltics first and then do the Ukraine after that. Yeah. Any time you're going to these countries, I don't care what publisher it is, look and see what year it was done because things are changing so fast. Mm-hmm. If you've got a, a three-year-old copy of my book or a one-year-old copy of uh, Don's books, uh, go with the one-year-old copy and, and vice versa. You want the most up-to-date uh, Correct, yeah. uh, edition. Yeah, it sounds great. All right, Chris. Well, thanks, and happy travels. Thanks a lot, Rick. Bye. We have an email from Matthew in Aberdeen, Washington, and Matthew asks, uh, what would you say are the five biggest emerging places to visit uh, that used to be off the radar? And we've got Don George here from Lonely Planet. Don, what, what would you say that when you look at your sales records and so on, what are the ones that go, wow, this place is just uh, skyrocketing in, in uh, popularity? I would say China. China. Certainly. China is huge. Argentina. Uh, Brazil is certainly very big. Panama is big. Belize. Belize. Yeah. Those Good. are all um, very hot. And, of course, Eastern Europe is is taking off, too, hugely. Right. Those are all emerging destinations. And more power to them. I mean, I, I think that this kind of tourism is the hope of countries that really feeds the local economies and creates those connections that make the whole world a better place. So, now, important. You're an Australian publishing company, and the majority of your um, market is outside of the United States, I believe. Right. And you have guidebooks for all the regions in the United States. We do. Now, the United States is routinely outvoted in the United Nations 140 to 4. <laughs> uh, we've, our administration has hired some uh, publicity people to try to help our reputation, and who knows if that's going to work. I wonder, what is the, uh, just the bottom line effect on your sales for uh, the rest of the market looking at the United States? Uh, how are people looking at the United States? How are guidebook sales doing outside of our country for information for traveling within our country? Our, our USA book actually sells very, very well outside the U.S., especially in Europe and Australia. And it's an interesting challenge to write a book that Americans will use when they're traveling in the U.S., as well as Brits and Australians, for example. So you you end up saying some things that to an American would be pretty obvious, but that the European needs to know, for example. But, But on the whole, it's our guidebook authors who write about the USA find it really, really interesting because they learn things all the time. It's the old adage of if you look closely enough at your backyard, you'll see things you never saw before. Right. Yeah. Which is a fascinating exercise. And, and so we find that actually the USA is quite popular as a destination abroad, which is good news. Well, that's great. And are there any regions that are doing particularly well, or is it the predictable Grand Canyon, California? California, Grand Canyon, national parks are very, very big. Uh, And and New York. New New York York is huge. Exotic, off-the-beaten-track locations offer exciting travel possibilities, yet there's plenty to take in closer to home as well. Next, we'll look at some top U.S. destinations with two of Don's colleagues from Lonely Planet. Jay Cook will join us in a bit for some fresh ideas for visiting New York City. The city's enjoying an extreme makeover, and it's more fun than ever to visit. And up next, Sarah Benson gets us in the mood for the classic American road trip along Route 66, the fabled highway from Chicago to Los Angeles that opened up the desert southwest for those dreaming of savoring the freedom of the open road. We're at 877-333-RICK, and our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. Thanks for coming along today on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. It's time for a road trip, and that means in America, I believe, Route 66, Main Street of America. We got with us Sarah Benson, who wrote the Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66. Sarah, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Route 66, it was so much fun reading in your book the history of this thing. I mean, uh, it was it must have been a big deal when it was finally completed back in the 1920s. Yes, it was. I think the thing that's the most interesting about Route 66's history is how it's reflected the development of the U.S. in the 20th century and now into the 21st. It started off connecting a lot of small towns, and it was really a route that opened the way to the American West. In 1926, that was when it was officially finished and finally connected all the way from Chicago to L.A. And then in the 1930s and early 40s, it became a way for Okies and people escaping the Dust Bowl to make it to the orange fields and vineyards in California. And then it also became critical to the World War II effort. GIs hitchhiking westward, people going out to work in the factories and uh, continued to come into its own in the 1960s when hippies used it as a way to get to communes out west, including in Taos. Then it eventually was bypassed by the interstate, which was the brainchild of Eisenhower, who had seen Germany's autobonds during World War II and come back and decide that America needed them as well. And eventually Route 66 was bypassed piece by piece. But that whole bypassing sort of mothballs a lot of the retro, fascinating little bits of um, Americana. So in a way, it was a good thing from a travel and a history point of view. It was. And interestingly, the day that the last town was bypassed on Route 66, which was Williams, Arizona, in 1984, was the day that all the independent preservation associations state by state along Route 66 really started to kick into gear. So just as things started to be torn down and disappear, people became enthusiastic about preserving them for the future generations. So the 1980s, that's when the whole... um interstate system sort of was completed, and that's the formal end of the uh, status of Route 66 as a, a major highway then. Is that right? Yes, that's when it was officially decommissioned. I guess there's two different eras. There's the pre-World War II uh, Route 66, and then there's the sort of the 1950s and the big car era, right? That's right. Along a lot of sections of Route 66, you can choose to follow different alignments. So, for example, Illinois has done a really good job of signposting the route, and you can follow the 1920s route, the 1930s route, the 1940s route, the 1950s route. You can pick and choose what you want to see. And I think what surprises most first-time travelers along Route 66 is how much is really left that's still there to see and enjoy. So this is a 2,200-mile trip from Chicago to L.A., or vice versa, if you want to do the whole Route 66. Is that right? The exact distance changes every year as roads get paved over or restored, but it's about 2,200 miles from Chicago to L.A. or in reverse. And your book narrates it. I'm talking with Sarah Benson, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66. And I don't quite understand this. You said there's a 1930s route and a 1950s route. Would that be physically a different road or a different stretch of the road that, that focuses on that era? Um, they follow different stretches of the road. So, for example, outside a certain town, let's say Springfield, Illinois, in the 1920s, it went along the west side of town. And then sometime maybe in the 1930s or 40s, it switched and went over to the east side of town. But still, it follows the same general route. There are just different detours you can take depending on where the road was during that time period in our history. Now, Route 66 was Steinbeck's mother road in the Grapes of Wrath, right? That's right. He's the one who gave it that famous nickname. The Mother Road. And uh, is that just the color of the Depression-era refugees uh, with their California or bust visions? Exactly. And I think what most people associate with Route 66 from that time period is the stretches through Oklahoma and then especially running the gauntlet over the Mojave Desert into California are, I think, the most famous parts of the road from that time period. And that's where you've got museums today that take us back. Is that right? That's right. I think Oklahoma is really enthusiastic about Route 66. In fact, it has the most mileage of the Mother Road of any of the states along its length. So it's become very serious about preserving its history. It has a couple of good museums, including in Clinton, Oklahoma, where local oral historians and Route 66 enthusiasts and volunteers have all collaborated to um, present the story of the Mother Road for tourists who are tripping along it today. And is that just the Oklahoma stretch, or are they celebrating the entire 2,200 miles? They're celebrating the entire length of Route 66, but of course with a local focus on what you can see in Oklahoma. Now, I always get a lot of laughs when I tell people in California that I'm, I'm born in Barstow, and I see that there's actually a Mother Road Museum in Barstow. One more reason for me to go back to my birthplace. 
There is. And that museum is actually sort of a bonus museum because right next door you have a railroad museum that has a huge collection of rolling stock. And of course, Route 66 history has always been associated with the railroad because it followed the Santa Fe Railway out to California. So Barstow was always a historic desert crossroads, as I'm sure you know, and an important railway stop. And so they've combined the railway museum, the Western America Railway Museum, and a Route 66 Mother Road Museum in the same spot in Barstow. Wow. I didn't realize that there was a connection with the railway as long, along with the, uh, great, uh, the Mother Road out to the west. Any tourist who spends more than a day on Route 66 starts to realize it because all the vintage motels that they want to stay in um, back up alongside the railroad tracks. So people end up getting not quite the peaceful night's sleep they imagined on Route 66 in some stretches. We've got Les on the line in Littleton, Colorado. And uh, Les, I understand you grew up on old Highway 66 in Texas, right? That's right, Rick. Uh, In fact, I was born... uh in Amarillo, Texas, which is on the original route and even made the song, but uh, in St. Anthony's Hospital, which is right on the highway. Wow. <laughs> but I grew up in McLean, which is 75 miles east of Amarillo and is the location of the Texas chapter of the uh, Route 66 organization. And it also has several historic sites and museums that are of interest. Kind of unusual for a town of 800 people to have two museums and another uh, historic site. So, Les, growing up on the Texas stretch of Old Highway 66, do you have any uh, tips for people uh, exploring that that segment of the route? Yes, they should by all means stop at the Devil's Rope Museum, which is a a barbed wire museum uh, alleged to be one of the best in the country, and also in combination with a Route 66 museum. McLean is the headquarters of the Texas chapter of the Route 66 Association, and so there's an awful lot of interest in maintaining uh, that part of American history. You know, Les, I get a a sense that there's a a lot of people that really have a personal interest in uh, preserving the old character of Route 66. That's true. It has become of interest to a lot of people. We're always surprised to hear about the number of Europeans that uh, are traveling the United States by car and have read about uh, McLean and the Highway 66 Museum and the, the Barbed Wire Museum and also the, the first Phillips 66 gas station that was built outside the state of Oklahoma is there and it's been restored and is uh, an interesting place to stop. You mean you can fill up the tank as if you were back in the 50s? No, it's not in operation. It's just to look wow. at that would be cool. Sarah, are there any old-time gas stations still uh, that are a sort of a time warp? Uh, I think there are maybe two or three that are still in operation on the old uh, 66 route right down through the middle of town. Now, the Europeans are really into this. I've got friends in Germany, you know, and they, they, they leave their uh, fancy Mercedes at home, and they want to rent a big old Chevrolet to do Route 66. Right. <laughs> that part of Texas is uh, mainly cattle country. And so the Barbed Wire Museum uh, relates to the the history of cattle ranching, and and my family came to the area in 1898 to start a cattle ranch. Does that all make sense to you, Sarah? It does. I remember McLean distinctly. I love the Devil's Rope Museum. I have a photo um, taken in front of it with what they claim is the world's largest ball of barbed wire. And so it's kind of an unforgettable small town, of which you'll find a lot on Route 66. Just east of McLean, too. I wonder if the caller has been to Shamrock, where they've I done a great job. I used to live in Shamrock job. for a short period. Uh, they've done such a great job of restoring that Tower Conoco station and the U Drop In Cafe. They really um, it's have. this beautiful art deco structure in the middle of the prairies. It's really a landmark, and uh, they spent a long time restoring it with a lot of volunteer effort, like a lot of the sites along Route 66, and they've just done a fabulous job. West of McLean, about 10 miles, is a new rest stop, and on one side of the highway, this is I-40, there is a reproduction of the Dew Drop Inn or the the gas station in Shamrock, kind of an art deco, uh, just pretty impressive for a rest stop. Hey, Les, Sarah's job is to find good little places to eat and sleep along the way. It sounds like you're a kind of a person she'd want to tap for your local experience. Any good eating tips in this area? Absolutely. McLean has a an area uh, famous steak restaurant called the Red River Steakhouse. And it is well-known and has typical Texas ranch food. Sarah, are you taking notes? 
I've actually been there. They do have really good steaks and catfish, too. (laughs) Excellent catfish. Good for you. Hey, Les, thanks for your call. Glad to talk to you, Rick. You bet. Bye. And we have an email from Suzanne in Scottsdale, Arizona. Suzanne says, don't miss the Grand Canyon Cafe on Route 66 in downtown Flagstaff. The chicken fried steak has been made the same for over 35 years. That's what her husband says, who's a Flagstaff native. It's the best. Sounds like some fun eating along Route 66, Sarah. Fun and very caloric, too, at the same time. It's, it's, I think one of the most fun things about a road trip along Route 66 is you get to indulge in all that sort of diner food that you had as a kid. And there's so many good spots to stop along Route 66, small diners that have their famous pie recipe or chicken and biscuits. And there are so many of these that there are actually a couple of Route 66 cookbooks out right now that are more like coffee table books that have photos of the restaurants, a little bit about the mom and pop history, and then, you know, of course, reveal their secret recipes too. Yeah, we're getting emails from all sorts of people who love to pig out on Route 66. It sounds like here's a listener that writes us, when in St. Louis, you must stop at Ted Drew's restaurant on Route 66. Their concrete milkshake is top draw. Concrete milkshake? (laughs) Do you know that? I do. I've been to Ted Drew's. I'm actually from the Midwest, and I'd been there as a kid before I even started researching Route 66. And he makes frozen custard, which is denser than regular ice cream, and that's where the name the concrete milkshake comes from. But um, in summer in St. Louis, people will line up for a quarter mile, you know, around the block and beyond just to sample some of this. And it's been on Route 66 for over 50 years. Now, I am really enjoying my discussion with Sarah Benson. You write the Lonely Planet guidebook to Route 66. What a wonderful gig. I mean, you got this ribbon, this cultural ribbon going from Chicago to L.A., 2,200 miles, and it sounds like you know every little little nook and cranny on this list. You drove 7,000 miles in your last research trip? I did, and I think the reason why I first became interested in Route 66 is I was living in Los Angeles at the time, and I'm from Chicago. So when I was driving this, I was always staying at my grandmother's house in Chicago. So for me, it was more like the grandmother road instead of the mother road. Uh (laughs) But um, it was always good to go home at the end of a long trip. But every time I drive it, even now, I find new spots because Route 66 isn't static. It's always changing, and I think that's what makes it one of the most interesting things to research. Now, if you wanted to get into the 1930s, the Depression era, Route 66 lore, uh, would the Grapes of Wrath, would that be your best uh, sort of primer? Or what would you read to get into the mood for that? Well, actually, one of the most interesting books that you can buy, I would I would definitely recommend um, Grapes of Wrath to get sort of the social context of the road. But another thing you can do is um, the original Route 66 guidebook is available in a reprint edition. And so you can actually follow. um, It was researched in between 1926 and 1931. So you can actually use that book as you drive along Route 66 in companion with a more contemporary guide. And it helps you look for um, sort of like a treasure hunt or a scavenger hunt to find those historic gems along the way that you can now see the ruins of today that the author of the original Route 66 guidebook was writing about for the first time just after the road opened. Wonderful. Now, Sarah, I know we're uh, talking about your Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66, but it sounds fascinating to have the original Route 66 guidebook. What's the name of it again, and and, uh, where would you find it? The name is just Route 66, and the author is Jack Rittenhouse. And you can either order it from the University of New Mexico Press or it even better, support the local businesses along Route 66 because almost all of them ah, yeah. sell this retro reprint guidebook, including at the national park sites along the way. And I, for the first time, I went to Acoma Pueblo, which is one of the many Native American sites along Route 66. And it's the oldest continuously inhabited Pueblo in North America. And we took a tour with a local tribal guide. And uh, that was really fascinating. It brought together the Native American history along the road and also the natural beauty. So if you're looking for Native American history, where would you want to be particularly attentive as you do the trip? In sections of New Mexico and Arizona, especially between, I would say, between Albuquerque and the Grand Canyon, there are a lot of national park sites and tribal lands. Part of the joy of traveling along Route 66 is taking detours wherever it strikes your fancy. The whole trip is a much slower pace than the typical American vacation. So there's plenty of time to detour to ancestral Puebloan sites or Anasazi sites, or even, like I said, at Acoma Pueblo, Sky City, see the tribes and interact and learn about how they live today. Now, do you get a sense that this is just, um, there's a lot of touristy kind of cliches going on here, or do you actually meet some characters? Do you walk into their little mom and pop diner or something, and you feel like you've really connected with 
uh, a little out-of-the-way corner of America. There are so many characters along Route 66, and I think that is one of the most fun aspects. I mean, it hits some of the major tourist attractions. Um, in the western U.S., it goes right by the Grand Canyon. But the things that you remember are sort of those towns that have been forgotten and left by the wayside. And you meet the barber or the diner owner that's been there for 60, 70 years and can tell you about when they were a kid growing up on Route 66. And for me, that's more memorable than some of the megastar attractions along the road. And it sounds like there's kind of a Route 66 pride, a kind of solidarity among people who uh, have long been there, who've lived their lives on this uh, mother road of America. Definitely. I think that's why the historic preservation associations have so much participation. There's also a solidarity among tourists because even though Route 66 is growing in popularity in terms of tourism every year, it's still an unusual road trip to take. And in some places, it's hard to even find the road. So you have to have an intrepid sense of adventure. I think that when you see another person traveling on Route 66, I mean, there's no other reason to be a tourist in some of these towns. It promotes a real sense of pride and fun among the people who choose to take a road trip on Route 66. I've been speaking with Sarah Benson, who writes The Lonely Planet Guide to Route 66. Sarah, 2,200 miles, Chicago to Los Angeles, America's mother road. There's a world of places that you can explore and side trips, too. Tell me one place you just got to have as a must-stop on your Route 66 experience. For me, I never fail to stop overnight at the Wigwam Motel in Holbrook, Arizona. It's one of the few left in America. You actually sleep inside a concrete teepee, um, and you have your own little motor court. You get to park your car next to a classic car and then go to a diner afterwards. And I think that's a real slice of classic Route 66 Americana. I'm there. Thanks so much. We're getting our kicks on Route 66. Definitely. If you ever plan to motor west, travel my way, take the highway, that's the best. Get your kicks on Route 66. It winds from Chicago to L.A. After exploring the wide-open spaces of Route 66, let's go extremely urban. Jay Cook guides us into the ultimate big city experience, New York. 41 million visitors a year enjoy the Big Apple, and we've got lots of tips coming your way. 877-333-RICK. And add your comments to our message boards online at ricksteves.com. Don't forget Joliet, Springfield Mall, Chelsea, Tulsa, and El Reno. You want to tarry an old toucan carry, you may start to drag it. When you get to Daggett, you're getting blue for San Bernardino. In Pasadena, on Boot Route 66. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and today we're going to the Big Apple. It's New York City, and joining us is Jay Cook, who is the editor that put together the New York City Guide by Lonely Planet. Jay, thanks for joining us. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. New York City just seems to be having a renaissance, I guess. It must have been very difficult after 9-11, and now with Giuliani and Bloomberg uh, being sort of active mayors, it's not the the New York that we remember from the more rough-and-tumble days. It's very true. You know, the 1990s was a, a time of great renaissance in the city. Just like a lot of urban areas in America, it became a popular for younger people to move to the cities and uh, experience the culture that they have there. What happened at the same time is people saw opportunity. A lot of neighborhoods were redeveloped and made into hip, chic places to live, and people just flocked there. Really, since 9-11, tourists have responded in kind. And for the past five years, every year, New York City has set uh, tourism records. For five years running, New York City set visitation records uh, with 45 million people coming every year. It's amazing. That's double the major cities in Europe. That's just booming from a tourist point of view. So has part of that been America supporting New York after 9-11 and everybody wanting to go there and, and, and bring back the business? Well, definitely after 9-11, for sure, there was a big rush of heritage travel where people said, I, I want to go to New York City and, to a lesser extent, Washington, D.C. The city responded in kind by having a lot of really great discounts. 2003, you could get super cheap hotel rooms there. It was really fantastic bargain opportunities. They've changed a little bit in the past couple of years. It's very expensive. The other thing which has happened is that international visitors to the city are getting incredible value because the euro and the yen are so strong right now. And when we think of New York, like the rickety old subway just caked in graffiti, that's all been cleaned up. It surely has been cleaned up. In fact, now what you see in the subways is mosaic art. They've commissioned different artists to go ahead and put in colorful tiles at some of the major stations like Grand Central Station and and 42nd Street. The subway cars have been redone in an entirely new different kind of metal that spray paint doesn't even adhere to it anymore. I mean, seriously, the, it's amazing. David Letterman will make jokes about how they've cleaned up Times Square and things like that, and, and they really have. If you go to Times Square now, it, it's a completely different experience from when you might have seen in uh, film such as Taxi Driver or something that captured the New York of the 70s. Right. Where a lot of people have gone in general, though, a lot of the old New Yorkers, as Manhattan has gotten more expensive, is they've found themselves moving out to the outer boroughs, Brooklyn, Queens, the Bronx, Staten Island. And Brooklyn, in particular, has just experienced uh, a complete transformation in, in the past 10 years. Like many times, it started with the artists who saw, hey, there's an amazing warehouse space available in, in neighborhoods like Williamsburg or Dumbo. Uh, Dumbo is my favorite New York acronym. It's down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a district? Yeah, that's a part of Brooklyn that's right opposite uh, Lower Manhattan. You know, the Brooklyn Bridge is, is very short. You can walk across it easily. Commuters right. do all the time. People moved over to Brooklyn and basically made it a very vibrant community. Huh. Community of two million people, I should say. So you've got really a mosaic of subcultures and now boroughs that are becoming places that are destinations in themselves. Absolutely. And they're all taking on different individual tones as well. Queens, for example, when I was growing up, was a, was a very much like New Jersey, a residential community, most famous really for the Mets. Now it's got an amazing art scene that's happening in places like Long Island City, which is where the Museum of Modern Art had relocated to for a couple of years before it moved back into its new building on 53rd Street. So are these neighborhoods, as things get more affluent and fixed up, does that also mean they're blending together and becoming more homogenous, or are the distinctions remaining sharp? Well, you know, it's a battleground, to be honest with you, especially in Brooklyn. Uh, it depends who you would ask. Brooklyn is really in, in the target of the developers right now. There are some big projects, the Atlantic Yards Project, a project in the works to turn Coney Island into a, a Las Vegas-type uh, destination. Some people say it's great. A lot of those people who moved to these places 10 years ago, the artist class, now they're saying, oh, no, am I going to get priced out again? It's, it's, a, it's a tough dilemma. At the same time, then you start seeing more and more artists are moving to places like the South Bronx, which a long time ago was definitely not a place you'd want to travel. And and now people are going and and buying places and and establishing new neighborhoods again. All over the world, that's the the constant economic juggling that goes on where a place is run down and it can be affordable for the bohemians and the artists and the creative people. And then it gets sort of trendy and people with more money move in and and the uh, artistic edge moves out further, doesn't it? 
It's true. I think another thing that's happened is more and more people, when they're having children, are opting to stay in the city. And uh, part of the desire to move to the boroughs is just that natural desire to have more space. So the the concept of a backyard in Park Slope, Brooklyn, is a little appealing if you're mid-30s with a two-year-old. Tell me about Harlem. What's going on in Harlem lately? Oh, Harlem's just amazing, too. What a renaissance story that's been. 125th Street has been transformed into a a very broad shopping area. Some of the Magic Johnson movie theaters are there, and there are a couple of big department stores. 15, 20 years ago, this was not the case whatsoever. There were a few outposts of culture. The uh, Apollo Theater is very famous. Sylvia's is a very famous soul food brunch spot. They were there. Now there's so much more that's going on out there, and more and more people are moving to this area as well. They're also moving to uh, East Harlem or Spanish Harlem and further north in Washington Heights and turning little uh, corner bodegas into coffee shops and things like that. It's pretty amazing. Why did Clinton choose to set his office up in Harlem? (laughs) It might have something to do with soul food. (laughs) That makes sense. It's very true. It's becoming... um trendy, but it's still a center for black culture. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you really can't discount the fact that Harlem is the epicenter of African-American culture in this country. The music that is coming out of there still today is, is very vibrant. In fact, one of the cool things I like about New York City now is we've heard about gospel brunches in Harlem. They've been going on for a long time. Now you're starting to get hip-hop churches that are happening where your old-school rap artists like Curtis Blow have found religion, and now they're preaching it through the gospel of rap on Sundays. And it's really a powerful experience for a traveler to have. You know, that's a very good thing to put on your list. If you are curious about dropping in on an inner-city church service, there's a lot of energy there these days. Absolutely. And there's some very good guest houses up in Harlem as well. The Harlem Flop House is a favorite of mine. What I like about the Harlem Flop House is a gentleman moved into a block 20 years ago, and, and he was the first person to restore the block. And slowly but surely, he took period fixtures from all the other buildings around there as people were moving out, and he used them for his flop house, and now it's a really wonderful bed and breakfast. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're in New York City with Jay Cook, who edits the Lonely Planet Guide to New York City. Jay, New York has this reputation for being just brutally expensive. Are you saying there are new alternatives to high-rise hotels where you can get a better value for your accommodations? Oh, there definitely are. A couple of opportunities that you have for cheap accommodations. One, stay in a bed and breakfast in in one of the outer boroughs. In Brooklyn, for example, in Park Slope, there's some wonderful B&Bs that are there. There is one where the, the rumor has it that David and Victoria Beckham named their child Brooklyn because that was where Brooklyn came into being. Another opportunity for saving some money with accommodations is to Go for a European-style pension and keep the bathrooms down the hall. That's what I do when I'm going to New York City if I don't have a place to stay. If you don't care about having uh, the bathroom facilities in your room, you can save $100 a night on your hotel room. So what would a good budget double room cost these days for somebody who wants to you know, minimize their expenses? You know, these days, if you can get something for under $200 a night, you should jump on it. It's still very expensive. In fact, that's that's below the average. The average rack rate is around $260 a night. Uh, another opportunity, though, which I definitely encourage is to take a look at things like Priceline and Hotwire and try to bid for a hotel room or get a cheaper one if you don't care where you stay. But it's the, the city that never sleeps. Uh, maybe the reason that is is because it's so expensive yeah. to get a bed there. We have uh, Vincent on the line from Honolulu. Hi, Vincent. Hi. Thanks for your call. Do you got a question for Jay? Uh, yeah, I was wondering, um, flying into New York, do you have a lot of passengers that use it as a stopover to fly into Europe? Because, like, I'm from Hawaii, and um, I like to recover from the jet lag. And from the three airports, which would offer me the greatest choice of, say, flying to Paris or London? Could it be JFK or LaGuardia or What would you suggest in terms of convenience getting from the hotel to the airport and then flying on with the most flights to choose from one of the three airports, Newark, JFK, or LaGuardia? Well, I think that JFK and Newark are going to have the most uh, flights that go to Europe. And then if you want to go fly into New York City and then spend a day or some time, you might consider Newark. It's a lot closer. Uh-huh. And a few years ago, they started a thing called the Air Train, which is a direct mm-hmm. Amtrak connection that goes from Newark Airport to, to New York Penn Station. So mm-hmm. you can 
take a shuttle to the train station. Uh, it's a tram shuttle. Train into New York, pop out, and you're right underneath Madison Square Garden. Mm-hmm. JFK is a lot farther out, and LaGuardia is really number three in traffic to Europe. Mm-hmm. I guess I can get uh, a flight to New York, and if I want to go to Europe on the spur of the moment to France or England, I could, uh, I guess, check with one of the travel agencies or just go online. Oh, definitely. One of the great things about New York City is because it's a, the hub that gets us to Europe, it, the fares there are often a, a, a lot cheaper or there's a, there are more reasonable fares that you can find, uh, whether you book in advance or even if it's toward the last minute. The mm-hmm. competition really works to your advantage there. On the opposite side of that, it's really hard to rent a car there. <laughs> yeah, that's okay. I don't need to rent a car. But comparing New York City um, flying to London or Paris or any other European cities, do you think they may have more flights or more selection of flights than, say, Chicago or Washington, D.C.? Yeah, I, I would be surprised if either of those cities had more flights that flew directly in, into Europe. Uh, maybe Atlanta might have a, a, mm-hmm. a, an equal number. But if you're talking about you know, London, Paris, New York, probably at the top of the list. Good right. luck, Vincent, on your trip. Thank you. Flying all the way from Honolulu to Europe, I think it would make sense to stop over in New York for a while, and uh, you probably want to do more than a quick stopover. Uh-huh. Maybe stop in San Francisco, too. Good luck, Vincent. Okay, thank you. Jay, you mentioned earlier Times Square and Coney Island. These are sort of the big tourist traps that people have on their list. Are they worth checking out, and why? Well, on a beautiful summer day, Coney Island is a really great place to visit. It's it's a very wide expanse of sand. It's total Americana cliche in a good way. One of the things I like about Coney Island in the past few years is they've uh, invested time in repainting the old uh, 20th century advertisement signs. So they've really freshened up Coney Island from what it used to look like. It's also a great place for a festival. For example, on the, the 4th of July, they have the uh, the now famous hot dog eating contest, the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. Another thing they have in June is the Mermaid Parade, where people dress like mermaids and fairies and come out and promenade up and down the boardwalk. Great, great fun. In terms of visiting Times Square, you know, I always visit Times Square. Even though a lot of New Yorkers look down their noses at it, it's a fantastic place to go for one reason and one reason only, and that's the half-price tickets booth is there. If you're going to go to New York City, check out your theater options. It really doesn't matter what play you go to see because it's all about the experience of going to a play. If you go to the half-price tickets booth, you can choose from whatever's available that night, and there's usually a lot, and then go have a great night out. So your tip there is just, uh, if, you, if you care about your budget, go to the half-price ticket booth at Times Square, and then one way or another, go to a play on Broadway. Exactly. Now, let's talk about viewpoints. Of course, um, tragically, we no longer have the World Trade Center to look out over Manhattan from, but there's other places. Uh, what's, what's the most popular viewpoint for a big, wide shot of the town? Well, you know, I can mention three places that I think are fantastic. One is the obvious one. That's the Empire State Building. Uh, it's, it's majestic. You're in mid, the mid-30s. You've got a view of Central Park, and you've got a view of the rest of the island. I personally like the Empire State Building at night. It's quite romantic. They keep it open until midnight and 2 a.m. seasonally. It's really neat to go up there at night. The Another Vista point, which is relatively new, is the top of the rock, and that is Rockefeller Center. Last year, they turned around and opened up the viewing deck at the top, hmm. and that's actually better for Central Park because you're only a few blocks from it, and it's a wonderful view. The third place that I really like in terms of vistas is in Brooklyn. It's in Dumbo, and it's Empire Fulton Ferry State Park. That's the park right along the East River, which has the fantastic view of the Manhattan skyline with the Brooklyn Bridge going in, into it. It's really just amazing. That's the classic postcard view. Exactly. And one thing I like about that park these days is that they have uh, regular yoga classes as well. So you can see people out there in the morning doing their yoga with uh, really inspiring views. What's the latest on the World Trade Center site? Well, it's, there's progress. There's definitely, they're definitely making progress on that site. The first thing that they're doing that's moving forward is the new train station, the Port Authority train station that's going in there. It's going to be a fantastic building. One of the changes of Manhattan in recent years has been a lot of celebrity architects have come in and done some amazing designs throughout the city. And, and the PATH train station will be designed by Salvatore Calatravas, the Spanish architect, and it's really, really wonderful. Beyond that, the Freedom Tower, they've broken ground on it, and it is scheduled to be put up around 2011, and the, the area is really humming again with activity. And as a visitor, you can make a pilgrimage to the center, and there's memorials there and 
you still can't go into the perimeter, but all around the perimeter of the site, they have a signage that explains the history of the World Trade Center, then what happened on September 11th and things since then. What you can also see as well as in the area are some of the places like the Trinity Church and St. Paul's Chapel, which were places that it became symbols of really survival afterwards, these, these right. 18th century churches that survived this onslaught and became staging areas. When you're visiting New York, uh, it's important to have up-to-date information because there's new attractions. There's a new American Sports Museum. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's going in in Lower Manhattan as well. It's one of uh, several new museums that have opened up in the city. You know, when you talk about trying to get the, the newest information, I used to say get a village voice when you go to New York City and see what's going on. Increasingly, I, I find myself turning to Time Out New York magazine. It's a very good publication. And another place where you might want to check out is on the web. Uh, they have a very good visitors bureau, nycvisit.com. They tell you about new bargains, events that are coming up, what's on this season, things like that. Now, the Museum of Modern Art has been completely redone just a couple years ago. Is that right? That's correct, and it's a fantastic new building. Why? One of the things that's so cool about the new museum is previously it was very hard to get into. It had a, a very obscured front entrance, I think partially by design, but I'm not sure how well that really worked. Now they, they've opened up the cityscape, so there's kinetic energy outside and there's kinetic energy inside. It's a very vibrant place to be, and, and it has a good buzz, and it also has a fantastic restaurant attached to it called The Modern, which is uh, a Danny Meyer restaurant. He is one of the famous restaurateurs in the city behind places like the Gramercy Tavern. So as is the case of so many modern art museums, even if you're not that into modern art, the building itself is quite an exceptional experience just to, to wander through. Oh, absolutely. I mean, in the Museum of Modern Art, the building itself is a work of art. And one of the other great aspects of that work of art is the outside area, which would have been closed for so long. Now there's a patio deck that people can go hang around in and linger, and it really makes for a wonderful uh, addition to the museum. I'm speaking with Jay Cook. Jay is the editor of The Lonely Planet Guide to New York City. Jay, on your last research trip, what was your favorite discovery? I think my favorite discovery on the last trip was how vibrant and alive the Meatpacking District and Chelsea have become. And these are two neighborhoods on the, the lower west side of Manhattan. Chelsea is an area of art galleries, and it's got stork-hold brownstones as well. The Meatpacking District was exactly that, a, a former area of, of meatpacking warehouses that has like Chelsea, been turned into a gallery outpost. What I love about the Meatpacking District and Chelsea is soon we will see the High Line arrive there. The High Line is my favorite new New York City thing. It's an elevated park. It's an old industrial rail bed that's being converted into a park. It's only the second elevated park in the world. It's going to stretch for about 25 blocks above the street level and provide an unreal assortment of new views with wonderful uh, places to sit and stop. And there's going to be concert pavilions and things up there. Fascinating, great stuff. Sounds great. New York City, about 8 million people. And it sounds like about 8 million travel experiences. Happy travels. Thanks, Jay. Thanks, Rick. A table for two, a lady divine, a rhapsody blue, a bottle of wine. Then you'll listen to a siren song. Come and shuffle along. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to Milt Wallace at the studios of the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism for engineering help today. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Listen to the love.